Welcome to the Only One Shot Golf Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Gallagher Jr. Don't forget to subscribe to wherever you get your podcast. We appreciate you listening in. Today I have Dave Stockton Jr. as my guest. He's been a friend of mine for several years. He played on the PGA Tour for 10 years. He won twice on the Nike Tour, and now he's into instruction and synthetic putting greens. His dad, Dave Sr., as we all know, an incredible player on the PGA Tour, PGA Tour champions, and the Ryder Cup captain at Kiowa Island. So let's see if we can get Dave on the uh, telephone. All right, I got Dave Stockton Jr. on the line. Welcome to the Only One Shot Golf Podcast, Dave. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Thanks for having me on, Jim. Well, I know you're a busy guy. Your dad, Dave Sr., was an incredible player, both on the PGA Tour and PGA Tour champions and all the things he had done. But it was your grandfather that actually kind of got him started in golf. Who was your big influence? Was it your dad, your grandfather? Who got you started playing? Yeah, it was, you know, it was my dad. I mean, my dad jokes that I would have played golf even if my dad had been a, a, a plumber. Um, <laughs> I just, I always liked sports. And, I mean, he had a club in my hand at uh, two years old. And they were cut down, Dave Stockton, Spalding, Irons and Woods, and uh, with steel shafts and, I still have the set. It's pretty funny, but uh, it was like it was like six clubs, and um, you know, growing up on tour, and I remember working with my grandfather and my my uh, my dad's dad uh, won the Pack Eight individual title at USC, and um, when it was a Pack Eight back then, there was mm-hmm. no Arizona. And, and he was the first head pro at Arrowhead Country Club in San Bernardino, and that's the golf course my dad grew up on, right behind the box and so um i remember working with him he passed away when i was 15 but i always remember uh, spending time with him and then everything that he taught my dad um my dad taught my brother ron and i and and um you know i just always loved playing and and then obviously as you know caddying for my dad uh when, uh, when i was a kid before i got on tour and you were playing out there too and um Caddying every summer for my dad, I just love that. That was my, that was my job in the summer, and, and just I knew at a very young age I wanted to play on the tour. Yeah, what did you what did um, you back, what did you learn caddying for your dad when you were such a young age? You said you wanted to be, you knew you wanted to be on tour. What did you learn from that that maybe helped you? Well, you know, I just I'm always I, I love the competition. I love uh, that it's an individual sport. Even though I played baseball and soccer and basketball growing up too. Back then, you played a lot of different sports all year round, and nowadays you don't see that as much where kids focus on one. But um, I just I got a front row seat to watch the best in the world play, and um, it was it was something that I I I didn't take for granted, um, and I I just was constantly learning. I didn't play a lot of junior golf. Um, I would play in the summer. I'd play like two to four events a summer and typically get uh, not not play very well uh, in my early teens because it just I wasn't playing in tournaments much where all these kids were playing all summer long and beating my brains in. Um, as I got older and into high school and started playing more tournaments and started competing, my, my level of play went up and got better. And, and uh, Each year it was always about improving. It was always about uh, it wasn't always about going straight to the top of the mountain. It was about improving each year and learning from mistakes and things like that. 
you mentioned other sports, and everybody I've had on my podcast, the instructors, players, I mean, they were big on playing other sports. I mean, what are the benefits uh-huh. for kids to play other sports? And, of course, you're instructing now, but what are those benefits for those kids? Well, I mean, one of the big ones is you're not going to get burnt out. And, mm. you know, you, I see so often, um, you know, there are kids that can focus and play one sport year-round, and they thrive and they improve. That's a small percentage, actually, when you think of all the kids that do it. Um, the kids that are more well-rounded play a lot of different sports are just super talented in, in different sports. And so when they they are focused on that one sport, and then they, they can excel and play well. Um, you know, as a kid growing up, my, my dad always said to me, he says, you can be good at a lot of sports, but you can be great at one. Mm. And, you know, I think that way of thinking may not be the same now, but it depends on the individual. Um, for me, I, I mean, I like to hunt and fish. I, I like doing all, grew up surfing here in San Diego and as a kid and, you know, just always doing different sports. And, and then when it came to golf, you know, just love the competition of it. Well, that's a, that's a good point because I think Brian Henniger, he's been on the podcast, he said the same thing. It's about burnout. He talked about kids that played those sports, got some speed in their golf swing by playing those other sports, and it was just so important for their psyche and just to be around other kids because, because golf is, as we know and you know, it's such an individual sport and you have to be pretty selfish to be really good. Right. Uh, and in team sports, you don't have to do that. But you mentioned you know, hunting and fishing, there's a bond with your family that's a lot like my family, but that's that's so cool to be able to know you traveled and spend that time. How important was that to know you had that bond with your family growing up? Well, I didn't know any different, but it was it was awesome. I mean, my and my grandfather also had, on top of being the head, first head pro at Aero Pimps Club, he had stock sporting goods store in San Bernardino. And so he would sell sporting equipment and, and you know, uh, guns and, and all sort of fishing rods and everything. And, and I'd have people come up to me when I was playing on tours. I got my first baseball glove at Stockton Sporting at San Bernardino. I'm like, wow, that's so amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he taught my dad the love of the outdoors. So when my dad was playing uh, on the regular tour, when he took, when he, he would always plan a, a hundred, couple hunts a year, or at least a one big game hunt a year, it seemed like. And, and, um, um, and then fishing trips and things like that. So our family vacations were uh, hunting safaris in Africa or, or hunting trips to Alaska or fishing trips to Alaska or Costa Rica, um, all over the world doing these trips that were family-oriented around hunting and fishing and real serious quality family time. Um, and it just was so much fun. It wasn't the... We weren't the typical family that goes on vacation to Hawaii once a year or uh, Mexico or, or, you know, wherever, and and the dad goes and plays golf and the mom goes to the spa and the kids are playing at the beach or whatever. We were doing all all sorts of fun uh, hunting and fishing trips as a family. My mom was right there doing it too. Yeah, she loves it. I've I've seen pictures with Mm -hmm. her. She's probably as competitive as... The uh, you three, but you mentioned that bond, and I'll, we'll get back into your game a little bit. But the Kiowa Island Ryder Cup, your dad was the captain. That yep. was one of the most intense. Uh, everybody talks about it. What was it like for you? And what, did you have some duties? What were your duties that week uh, with your yeah, dad? It, I, yeah, I was uh, my dad's assistant captain, and so was my brother. 
Mm. Um, so we were the only, it was a family affair completely. And, and I had turned pro six months prior to the Ryder Cup. Okay. And uh, missed it first stage of Q school. And uh, I was 22 years old. Um, and my dad had the guides come in the week prior to the Ryder Cup to get familiar with the course because mm-hmm. it was obviously unlike anything that we play on tour. Um, and, and the wind can change and blow different directions, as you know, there that you wouldn't see those conditions, you know, if you only played it a few times, it'll change. It changes a lot. And so he had him come in the week before and, and he said to me, he says, junior, go out there and play with the guys. Because he wanted me to report back. Because he was while he was handling stuff uh, with media and and other stuff behind the scenes, so the guys could just focus on their golf and get them to know the course. He wanted me to to play with the guys, evaluate their you know play, say who's playing, you know who's doing what, who's on, who's off. And so I played with the guys, and I mean it was such a great experience for me. Obviously, I was. Uh, I look back and I'm just like, God, I was so lucky to have this experience. And again, it was just me playing with the guys that I grew up watching when I caddy for my dad every summer. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, Zinger was my partner when we played. He, he and I were partners, and and uh, I'll still never forget. We were down, uh, we were down uh, eighty bucks to Payne and um, and uh, Lanny. Oh gosh, <laughs> and. And we're on the 18th hole, and Zinger looked at me and goes, I think we should press him. What do you think, Junior? I'm like, I'm well, like $40. Dollars. <laughs> I got like $40 in my pocket. So, uh, yeah, if you want to press him, let's press him. And he, pro- he goes, we're pressing. And he promptly snap hooks it into the game's <laughs> left. And I'm like, don't leave me alone with these guys. <laughs> and I ended up winning the hole, and we broke even. So that was good. But uh, we got we got out of that one. But um, it was I mean, obviously, it was so contentious, and, and you know, there was a lot of stuff blown out of proportion with the, the camo hats. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that was, that was for a couple reasons. One, the Gulf War just ended, and it was a you know, tribute to them. It was by no means a war against Europe and the Ryder Cup. Um, it was more about my dad thought it'd be cool to have these Ryder Cup hats for duck hunting. Right. Yeah. You know, later in the year, and so he gets these hats, and it's kind of fun. And and um, and then you know, Corey Taven and and Steve Pate wore the hats in the matches, and um, you know, it caused a stupid uproar. But you know, it's all water under the bridge now. But uh, blown out of proportion, like like a lot of stuff is. And um, you know, it was just I remember Saturday night. Uh, we're in the, you know, back then there was no homes on Key Island. It was, it was, the only thing was there was a golf course. Um, there was no clubhouse. Right. There were trailers for each team. We had these trailer team rooms and they were literally, uh, double wide. And, um, the only place on the island that was built was this six story condo high rise that was right on the beach. And, the European team had the first three floors, and the USA team we had the the, the top three floors, and we were on the same building. Yeah, and um, that was how it was. And, and Saturday night at the, the team dinner, we're in the team room, and dinner's finished, and Payne gets up and cranks the music. He cranks "Born in the USA," Bruce Springsteen, and jumps up on a table, <laughs> waving an American flag and screaming, 
singing it at the top of his lungs, as you know, Payne would, and uh, just firing up the guys, you know, and it just it was such a surreal experience. Yeah, that's a, that's a, those are some great stories, and people haven't heard those. That, that's Payne. He he was something because I made the '93 Ryder Cup, which was after that, and there was still a little mm-hmm. hangover. Yep. They were still a little upset with with all that stuff. But you know, things happened over there. I remember. You know, when we were down going to Sunday and we end up taking the lead and it looks like we're going to win and they were, you know, the fans were pretty tough on us. I mean, I remember getting hit with a Sprite can and I turned around and said, now where are the ugly Americans? You know, it just kind of got to that. Uh, but it, yeah. was, it was good fun. I mean, it was fun. It was The players kind of just took it as an intense, you know, rival and, and kept going. But uh, everybody else wanted to make it bigger than that. But you, you followed your dad at USC. You had a good college career and you mentioned turning pro. Uh, you finally, you know, get through tour school. What was that like going through tour school for you? Um, <laughs> it was a learning experience because I naively thought I, when I turned pro, that I'd just get through Q school. And, uh, well, I missed the first stage. Mm. And uh, I'm like, okay. So I hopped in my car and I drove around the country that year playing what was the TC Jordan tour then. Yep. became the Hooters tour. I'm not sure if that's still around. Um, but I played that. Uh, came back, went to Q school, made through first, missed it second. So I'm like, wow, I'm wasting my life. What's going on here? And I went to South Africa, played the, the Sunshine Tour down there, and then I came back and played the, drove around the country playing that TC Jordan Tour again. And then I uh, went to Q school, made it through first, second, got to finals, and it was at the Woodlands um, where we played the show. You mm-hmm. play the show, and now the Champions Tour plays the Insperity. And, um, I made the mistake of thinking, going, okay, what did it take here last time to make it? And, um, you know, what was the number last time? And I was watching scores and keeping track. Well, I beat about 10 people out of 180. <laughs> so I realized that I was thinking way ahead and not thinking one shot at a time. And I just was getting ahead of myself. And so I was conditional on the Nike tour and I went out there and, I had such a bad number that I couldn't get in the first six events. And I'm, I'm going to the Mondays and trying to qualify each week, driving around the country at these events. And I shot between 68 and 71 each Monday and never got in. Wow. And um, I, uh, my dad got me. I was in Macon, Georgia. My dad got me on. Uh, I had missed. I shot 68 in the qualifier and lost in a playoff. So I didn't get in. And I called home. I said, I'm just. I'm burnt. I'm mm-hmm. totally frustrated. I know I could play well if I could get in one of these events, but my number's so bad, and I'm just not getting in on the Mondays. And and I was contemplating just taking some time to get re, you know, just refresh. And my dad says, uh, "Let me call you back." And I said, "All right." So he calls you back about 15 minutes later. He's, he says, uh, "How'd you like to play Augusta?" Wow. And I went. I said, Dad, it's not funny. I go, why are you going to, I mean, are you serious? And he goes, yeah, well, I spoke with Dave Spencer, the head pro there at the time. He says, not a guarantee that you're going to get on, but he says, drive over there tonight. You're going to see there's a member on site. You can get out and play the next day. And I said, I'm in the car. And I drove over there, and by the time I got there, I stayed with the head pro's son and two other assistant pros. They said that, uh, yes, a member will be on site. He's going to allow you to play as his guest. And I played the two assistant pros and the head pro's son. And this was two weeks after the Masters. And it was in perfect shape. Greens were lightning. And uh, we played 36 
that day, and, and I shot 66 in the morning with a bogey on 12. That's the scariest shot in golf. Mm. It wasn't even a tournament. As you know, you mm-hmm. played it. And um, and then I shot 200 in the afternoon. I didn't have a three putt for 36 holes, and um, that it fired me up. I went to the next tournament, Monday qualified, paid $1,200, and reshuffled up to where I was in every week. And then I I won at Yale Golf Club in New Haven, Connecticut, for my first night's win. And then went miscut, miscut, and then I won by four in Iowa City at St. Fine. And so my two top tens were wins. It got me exempt from finals at Q-School. And finals that year happened to be at PGA West and La Quinta. And I obviously lived in La Quinta, and I knew the courses. And my mindset wasn't what it was going to take to win it. My goal was I was going to win, and mm-hmm. I was going to look at who scores, and I was going to go leave the course and go practice at the Citrus course at La Quinta. It's a great range. And I just, my mindset was win. And uh, lo and behold, I won. Uh, 93 finals. You know, that's um, a great point, because I think a lot of people talk about you know, when you set goals and, and you set it high, attainable, but mm-hmm. high as, as opposed, and you see that sometimes guys in a tournament, hey, I just want to yep. make the cut. Well, that's probably about what you're going to do. Uh, right. And I, that's a great point. I think our listeners, the kids listen, and I think that's something they can learn from. And even the college kids that listen and, and coaches that listen, it's just, you know, you have goals and it's nothing, it's not cocky. It's just something you have to do is set them high. Uh, because yeah, just, they're your goals. Right. You're, you know. But you, yep. and you, and I mean, it, and you see the same thing on the PGA Tour sure. at the highest level. I mean, there's players that uh, you don't tiger going out to win every event. And so is Dustin Johnson, so is Justin Thomas, you know, Roy McIlroy. I mean, these guys, they're going out there to win. They're not going out there to, to, to make the cut or have a top 10 or, you know. And then there's guys that are, you know, perfectly happy. You know, hey, finish 20th. I'm That's a great week. Well, let's go get them next week. But their goals aren't necessarily to win, and you know, I, I always work with the kids I work with, people I work with. Like, hey, set your goals higher, because if you're if you don't, don't be surprised when you don't excel and you don't. If you're not visualizing it and picturing it, it's not going to happen. Yeah, I think that's what Tiger came across as cocky, but that was his. That's what he believed. Those were his goals. Yeah, and I, I mean, well, and that was that was the craziest thing with him because you know when he came out in '96, he had that interview with Curtis, and you know, he says, what, what are your goals? He says, my goals to every time I tee it up again. And he, you know, we all know that Curtis laughed and kind of smiled at him and said, you'll learn. And he just stared at him like, mm, that's my goal. And we weren't, nobody was used to that. Mm-mm. But that's one of the things that made him just, aside from his crazy ability, um, to have that mindset, it was so powerful. And, you know, I mean, Definitely can help whether you're the best in the world or, or uh, just an average player or just a, a club player. I always tell people their handicaps, that's your comfort zone. Right. That's all that is. So if you go out and you're a 10 handicap and you go out and shoot even par on the front, you're probably going to shoot about six or seven over on the back, if not more, because you're just not used to being there and you're thinking about your score and everything else. And the same can be flip-flopped if you're a 10 handicap and you go out and shoot like seven or eight over on the front. You're mad. You're going to play better on the back. Yeah, I mean, you're trying to get comfortable in an uncomfortable situation. That's what you want to do. That's why you practice. That's a great point. Right. I think that's... That's that's an awesome point because I think it's true with what no matter what level it is, whether you're trying to win your club championship or, 
or win five dollars off your buddies on the weekend. I mean, that's what it is. Exactly. You know, you yep. you, you you know, back to your plan. You got through tour school. You got you kept your card that year. Uh, and, and they don't realize how, realize how important it is to have full status because you can yeah. it validates that you made it. You know, you make a schedule. You know, you're solid for a year. And it kind of takes some of the pressure off. You're still driven, but it's it's really important to have full status out there. Yeah, it, it really is. And then the next step is to win, which, um, unfortunately, my best finish was second. And, uh, you know, that's where you get some job security because you got a couple of years. Now you can really, you know, plan things out even better. But if you're teeing it up each year, and you yeah, you got to keep your card. And <laughs> if you think about it, and I know I did. Cause I, I mean, I was more of a journeyman in my 10 years playing. It was it was a grind. I got through the finals of Q School four times. Wow. Total. So once I figured out how to do it in 93, when I did go back, um, I mean, when my daughter, when Serena was born three months early in 98, I took the last three months of the year off, and we were in the hospital with her, mm-hmm. and I missed my card by, I think I missed my card by $8,000. Mm. I would have kept my card that year. And didn't even think about medical or anything. I just went to the final Q school and I finished fourth. Um, <laughs> and it, I didn't think about it, but it just. Well, the pressure know, might have it, been off. You were just kind of, hey, life was more important I than didn't, golf. Yeah, honestly, exactly. From 98 on, I mean, after what we went through with her, golf wasn't as important to me. Um, and when my kids got to the age where I was missing things and being on the road, um, it was easy for me to walk away after 2004 ended. That was a segue. And, How uh, difficult was that? Because you saw your mom and dad go through that, and your brother, you, you guys went that with your dad. How t- tough was it? I know for me, Sissy told me one time, and I was kind of struggling there towards 99, 2000, and, and I was trying to play what was then Buy.com, which is Corn Ferry Tour. And she goes, you know, when you're home, your mind needs to be home, and when you're on the road, your mind yeah. needs to be on the road. And, you know, Bruce Litsky to me, in the great Jack Nicholas, yeah. your dad, they did it as good as anybody. They balanced that. Yep. That has, that's yep. really difficult. Uh, even though you know what you got to do, that's difficult though, isn't it? It's, it's very hard. Um, and I think the guys that can, uh, compartmentalize everything and, uh, be in the present when they're on the road and be in the present when they're home. Um, those are the guys that excel. Those are the players that do their, do the best. And, uh, it's, it, it's just, it is what it is for me. Um, I was just, uh, I knew it was time to leave because I, I really felt like I'd lost the edge, mm-hmm. um, with what we went through with Serena and I fought it and tried and, and grinded. And, you know, I, my last time getting to Q school finals was 2002 and had a horrible 2003. And, and then, uh, 2004 was on the web. And I, I was, it was easy to walk away, and I didn't regret it one bit. Um, still don't. And, uh, you know, I, I had that chapter, and a um, lot, of, lot of great memories. And, uh, you know, made a lot of friends, obviously, and um, it, was, it was fun. It's not the glamorous life that uh, I think a lot of these guys now, they, <clears throat> they're all flying their private jets and doing that stuff. And that wasn't the case when you were making – uh, the money we were making in the early to mid nineties. No, um, you're right. So like few had their chats, but now it's like the amount of money out there is just crazy. Well, you had to have money to go to movies because you dragged me to movies <laughs> every Wednesday. I know. 
every Wednesday, and you knew every. And you go yep. see the movie three times just so you could do it. Yeah, again. between Omar and I. Yeah, now, Omar and I were the movie critics. Yeah, <laughs> but you always pick good ones. I always enjoyed doing those. But we had some good times together. But you, you talked about yeah. walking away, and 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 no one. I never made it public, and no one really knew about it. But the last event down in Biloxi, uh, I had my son Thomas caddy for me. I think it was three years ago now, and uh-huh. and I I was kind of like you. I'd kind of lost that little bit of edge i didn't have it in my heart yep. uh and i was doing mm-hmm. tv and i wanted thomas to caddy and i never said a word didn't say a thing and i struggled the first day or two and the last day i said all right if this is going to be it i'm going to play hard and we walked up on i was finishing up on the ninth hole and i got up on the green put it in and i said thomas that's it it's over and he looked at me and he goes what uh, do you mean you're not going to quit and i said no i'm not quitting I just have had enough. I've done this, and it's time for me to do, you know, give it up. And I said I love it too much to to, to just struggle through it. It's no fun. Yeah. Uh, and right. I would put myself through it, but I don't regret the 10 years I stayed home. Uh, and I think, you know, mm-hmm. we, we both had it in, in perspective, and I think that's why our kids love us, and we, we, we got to know who they were. Uh, and that's why you got yeah. to, your mom and dad or your dad got to know you and Ronnie, and I think that's important. But you mentioned the next thing. I mean, when you decided to quit, what was next on your agenda? Because I know what you did, but what were you thinking to do next? Well, um, I I started doing some, you know, commentating with, with Golf Channel, and um, and I really enjoyed it. My first one was Reno at Montro. Um, I had missed the cut. <laughs> it was 2003, and I would missed the cut. And, um, uh, uh, Keith Ersman came up to me. And I'm uh, hitting some balls uh, Saturday morning just to practice because I was going to be on the shuttle that up to the tournament in Vancouver, the Air Canada. Mm-hmm. And so that was Sunday afternoon. So we had rented a house and there by the course, and we were there for the weekend anyway. And so I was just working on my game, and Keith walked up to me and said, uh, hey, do you want to do uh, some on-course commentary for us this weekend? And I went, yeah, sure, why not? And... Um, so I did that, and Saturday, you know, I got as you know, you got that earpiece in, and you're you're talking and commentating. <laughs> when I'd say something wrong, they'd say, "Here, instead of this, say this." They got it. And um, Saturday was a little rough. It was I, I knew I made some mistakes, and then Sunday I was like, it was like boom, it just clicked, and everything was good. And and I had been following Gary Kelly, who had you know had the lead and looked like he was going to win, and and then Cookie ends up coming in right. fast finishing. John Cook wins the tournament. And um, uh, Keith comes in my ear and says, Junior, I want you to interview Cookie when he comes out. <laughs> and I went, okay. So I interview him, and I just interviewed him like he's was a, you know, like he been a friend forever, which right. he has. And haven't played with him on tour and everything. And, and I just asked him questions other people would you know, want to know at home. And, we got finished, and I, I did a really good job of the interview, and he, and we got finished. He goes, you did great. I go, oh, thanks. <laughs> you know, so that was the start. I really enjoyed doing it. And, um, and then, you know, I did some more events uh, when I when I missed cuts and stuff, which happened a lot to me, especially <laughs> in 2003. And then I did uh, work for them in 2004, and then um, had an opportunity with USA Network. And to commentate for them, and it was more money, and it seemed like a smart move, and and I did that for two years with them, and then everything went to the Golf Channel, and uh, 
I didn't have a job anymore. Mm. So, um, I couldn't get back with Golf Channel. I guess I'd been blackballed or whatever. And uh, so then I got into um, real estate. Was doing real estate. Uh, started down in Cabo at at Chileno Bay, and then was the Discovery Land Company at Madison Club and in the desert and Anza Ranch in the summertime. Enjoyed that for a bit, um, but then uh, 2008 hit and the, the market crashed and. I started teaching people. I started helping people with their games. They were asking if you might help me. Sure. And I found I really liked helping people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got more enjoyment out of seeing people improve, their games improve uh, from what I was telling them, just stuff that I knew. And it really seemed to resonate with people. And, and so in 2009, I, I started full, full-time teaching. And, um, and then that's the same year that, my dad and I worked with uh, Phil and Nicholson at the Bridges uh, the week before the uh, tour championship, and his putting was really off. And it didn't take much to fix, which usually they're not hard fixes, especially when you're dealing with a player like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he won the tour championship at East Lake the next week by three, and was making more more. He had made more long putts than he made the entire year, um, and he commented that he'd worked with us and. That was kind of the beginning of Stockton Golf, and uh, my dad and I realized that, hey, there's a lot of people who can't putt. Well, this is to us, it's easy, so mm-hmm. let's, just, <laughs> let's make it a business. So, you know, he was teaching out of Redlands, and I was teaching out of the desert at the time, and, and uh, uh, now doing it here in San Diego, and, and then got into the synthetic turf business. So I kind of jack of all trades, you know, if you think you're stuck in a, in, in a rut, you can't change just because of your age. I'm 52 and constantly evolving, and uh, you know, changed quite a few times. But it's just rolling with it. Yeah, that's you a good point. Love po- what you're doing. It's not work. Yeah, it's a good point. You mentioned short game. I mean, it's a kind of a tedious thing to teach, and you don't get that instant success maybe uh, on a full swing. But you know, what makes a good instructor, in your opinion? Um, I to me, it's it's being able to work with. You're not teaching the same thing to everybody because everybody's different. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a big believer that you that you need to figure out what makes that player tick, and whatever their ability, their mindset. You're you're also really almost like a little bit of a sports psychologist because you've got to get in their head. You know, it's it's not about oh you got a great swing. Well, if your head's a mess, you're not gonna it's right. not gonna equate to consistency and and everything else. And, and um, so it's evaluating a player's mindset quickly. Um, not just ability, but mindset. Because once you get the mindset figured out, now you know what you can work with and what you can do. And um, that's something that everybody's, whatever shape, size you are, age, whatever, everybody's different. You can have somebody who's not really an athletic person, but if they're really good mentally and they're mentally tough, they can get it, they can get it figured out. They right. can get it dialed. Um, and so that's, that's a huge key. And my grandfather used to say, he'd be given a lesson at the club and, uh, he'd uh, be somebody sitting right next to that person hitting balls and he could see they'd be listening in, uh, because they were getting a lesson next. And my grandfather would tell him, you don't need to I'm going to tell you something totally different. Right. That's and, true. I think know, that's, that's that's what makes it. You're, you're right. Great instructors because you got to take what the student has because the levels are different. 
But when you look at yeah. the, the big picture, what separates an elite player from the average player, in your opinion? Um, I think uh, mindset and, and mental toughness mm-hmm. are, the, are the two. I mean, you know, athletic abilities, I think that's, that's a smaller part of it. Um, obviously, if you're super athletic, that's great. But it, it's the mental side now more than anything, where if you're mentally tough, um, you know, I look at a Jim Furyk. I mean, that's a golf swing that people have wanted to change for yeah, thirty plus years. He shot fifty eight and fifty nine, and he will be in the Hall of Fame at some point. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a mental toughness. It's not. It's not a. You, you gotta have that that grit inside at whatever level, um, and that inner belief that you're going to hit the shot. There's People don't realize how negative they're, they are when it comes to hitting shots and, you know, not being committed, mm-hmm. being fully committed to the shot at hand. And, and, you know, I always, I tell people, I'd rather have you fully committed to the wrong shot than non-committal to the right one. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a great point because, I mean, it's – I tell caddies that. Give me the yardage, give me the club, but be committed because if you're wishy-washy, I'm wishy-washy, and you're not going to yeah. execute the yeah. shot you want to hit. I, I think that's right. a, a wonderful point. And, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, those are those are valid points. That's what separates the elite. That's why they're elite. They're able to mentally get mm-hmm. over those things. Uh, and it's amazing to watch the best, but the golfers are so fragile, even at the professional level. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, maybe their top five or ten aren't as fragile, but mentally they—they're just—they get down pretty quick with a couple bad shots, and they kind of get into a bad habit. Yeah. Here we go again, even at the top level, and you've got to find a way to discipline yourself not to do that. But you mentioned th- synthetic greens, and I know you're—you're you're busy. Uh, but tell us about those, and do you design them, and how do we get uh, in touch with you to try to find uh, maybe put some in our yards? Yeah, uh, Back Nine Greens is a company I'm a partner in and um, based in Palm Desert, California, but we do greens all over the country and outside of the country. Um, I have them uh, just by chance. I went with them. I'm glad I did. Uh, when I was living in Rancho Mirage in the desert, I got tired of my water bill, which keeps going up here in California. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, I was going to go synthetic, and I wanted to do a lawn on one side of the pool and a green on the other. and I looked at a couple different companies and I went with back nine. And and when I saw the quality of what they put in from how the ball rolled through, it didn't wiggle either way. I mean, it rolled through each time led lights in the cups. I mean, I was blown away. I got the green rolling at its ball. This is what I wanted. I got to know the owner. I said, I've I've seen a lot of synthetic stuff in the past. I've never seen anything at this quality. I couldn't find a seam. Mm -hmm. There's no seam. I couldn't find a seam. There's seams there, but you're not going to see them. I'm like, I don't get it. He says, well, it's just, he says, these guys that I have working for me, these guys are craftsmen, is what he said. And they they take pride and care in what they're doing, and I I wanted to be a part of that. And uh, I got to know the owner, and... um, we became friends and partners, and we developed a luxury division. Um, one of the coolest things was was doing uh, the first pop stroke in Fort St. Lucie, Florida, the two eighteen hole putting courses. Mm. That uh, it's a restaurant. It's a like a top golf version with just with putting. Right, that's cool. And Tiger Tiger's a part of that company now, and and his design team is designing them going forward around the country. And uh, I think Fort Myers just opened up. That's the newest one. 
going to be one in Scottsdale. They're, they're going to talking about like 50 of them around the country. And um, we're doing stuff for Top Golf as well. So, you know, there's a lot of synthetic companies out there, but um, with Pop Stroke and Top Golf using us, that's a nice feather in the cap. And um, it's really fun to design them. I, I really look forward to getting into the design side with people that I that I work with that do, I do the greens for. Well, you mentioned craftsmen. It's like a shaper on a golf course. I mean, your golf course is yep. only as good as your shaper. Uh, oh, and, and, oh, and the shapers, the shapers we use, um, we have shaper. I just worked with them on one I'm doing right up by Spanish Bay in Santa Gates. Uh, Jose Vivo, he's he's just. He just did the, all the shaping for the new Peter Hay course at Pebble that Tiger redid. Cool. Redesigned. Yeah. And this guy does stuff for, you know, the, the shapers we use do stuff for Fazio, Crenshaw Thor. I mean, all the top, all the top uh, architects and, and uh, uh, designers. So we use, you know, the best shapers to get, to get the shaping because the shaping's just generic. It just, it doesn't show as well mm-hmm. we want it to look like it's always meant to be there and just fits that's fascinating it's an amazing thing to see people do those things and how they've come along in those just in synthetic greens uh, yep. over the years and how much better they got and how true they do roll because i mean before it was just artificial turf and you went the same way all the time uh, but, right, but but we appreciate you taking your time i know you're uh, just moving into a new house and you're busy with that uh, and you I always kind of like to end the podcast, whether you're in life or golf, you only have one shot and you got to make it count. sounds like you're making it count and you're continuing to make it count. But Dave, appreciate you being with us. Appreciate your friendship. And, uh, I was one of those students that there was a lot going on in my mind when I worked with you and I kind of had to Gallagherize everything, but we had a lot of fun. <laughs> we had a lot of fun working together, buddy. <laughs> it was fun, Jim. Uh, and I uh, value our friendship. It's been great over the years with you. All right, buddy. Thank you. Thanks for having me on.